welcome everybody to all of our campuses today. I want to welcome those of you also watching online. We consider you to be a part of our congregation as well. Uh, but to all of you in the Twin Cities here, thanks for coming out to church today at all our six campuses. Welcome to all of you. Uh, this past week we had 31 Norwegians visit us at our church, uh, pastors and teachers over in Norway. All young people in their 20s, mainly in their 20s and 30s. And they were here all week long, took vacation time and spent their own money to come and kind of a mutual mentoring thing. But they track us every single week. They watch us online and so they came over. And of course Norwegians are always on vacation so they have time to do that. But uh, many of them are still here today and it just had been a great week to be with them. And uh, anyway, just thought you want to know about that. Way to go, you Norwegians. But this is the final message in our series called Restart. And today's message is called Revive My Soul. And I want to begin with a very important question. And the question is this, how is the condition of your soul? How's the condition of your soul? Is it strong or weak? Full or empty? Is your soul joyful these days or is it sad? How's your soul? It's a big question because your soul is the most important part of you. It's the part of you that experiences things like love, joy, and peace. It's the part of you that can also experience things like anxiety, loneliness, and depression. You can have a spiritually empty soul that's darkened by things like hatred and greed. You can have a soul that's occupied by God's spirit and filled with his love and generosity. So how's the condition of your soul? Is it well with your soul. Back in the fall of 2000, I was not very healthy physically. I had a sore throat I couldn't shake. I had daily nosebleeds. And I had some dizziness that would hit me unexpectedly. The room would start to spin. I would black out and get sick to my stomach. And finally, I went to an ear, nose, and throat specialist. And my kids, who were 12 and 13 at the time, came along with me just for entertainment. Uh, the doctor walked in. He looked just like Groucho Marx. No kidding. You look just like him. Big mustache, long white coat, round metal thing strapped to his head, old pair of glasses. I glanced over at my kids, and they were smiling, and I knew what they were thinking. They were thinking, I wouldn't let that guy poke around in my ears, nose, and throat, but I was desperate. So he pulled up a stool, and I was there mainly for dizziness, but I figured as long as, as, long as I was there, I would have him do a complete overhaul. So after he examined my ears and tried to figure out the dizziness thing, thing I asked him to check my vocal cords because they were always sore, from overuse, so he dropped a scope down into my throat, into my vocal cord area, and he looked around a while. I said, they're fine. I said, how about my nose? I've been having nosebleeds. So he got out his nose tool, he stuck it up my nose, and he said, ooh, this is the bad kind. Kind of a blood vessel issue, I guess. Groucho looked at me through his glasses, metal thing on his head, and he said, you want me to take care of that? I said, absolutely. My kids were wide-eyed because if you saw this guy in the street, you would never let him get near your nose. But he got out his tools and he said, I got to numb it. I got to numb it before I cauterize it. So he stuck something up my nose and it hurt. I gripped the sides of the chair. My eyes started to water. And then he grabbed his cauterizing tool. And in order to see what he was doing, he, he took what I can only describe as a, a nose spreader and it felt like I was giving birth through my nose. Now, I don't know what it feels like to give birth, but it had to feel like that. And it feel, I said to him, I said, it feels like you're piercing my nose and that I'm going to pass out. So he finished up quick, laid me on the floor with my feet propped up on a chair, told me to take some deep breaths and he'd come back later. I was lying flat on my floor, 
on the floor in pain when my daughter Megan said, Dad, you're such a nerd. <laughs> I mean, nobody in my family has the mercy gift. Not a single one, but my nose today is as good as new. Now, fortunately, we have doctors like that who can fix most of our physical ailments. But where do we go when we feel sick in our spirit? What doctor can fix a weak and weary soul? What cure is there when hope is gone and we don't feel we can face another day? You know, when people say things like, I feel like my life is falling apart or I'm losing control or I'm coming apart at the seams, those are cries, I think, from a, a weak or wounded soul. Psalm 88, 3, the psalmist says this, my soul is full of trouble. I'm a man without strength. He says, because my soul is in trouble, I'm in trouble. I mean, what's the cure for that? What pill is there for a troubled soul? The Bible teaches there's a connection between our body and soul. So in Psalm 84, 2, it says this, with my whole being, body and soul, body and soul, I'll shout joyfully for, for the Lord, to, the God, to, to my God. Proverbs, kind words are like honey, sweet to the soul and healthy for the body. So there's a connection between our body and soul. We're not just a body. We're not just a soul. We're a body and a soul, but there's also a third part of our makeup, and that's our mind. And all three parts together, mind, body, and soul, is our human being. And friends, they're all connected. So whatever my mind feeds on will affect the condition of my soul. I mean, you can't watch four hours of the Kardashians and Bachelor in Paradise every night and not have it deaden something in your soul. You can't. You can't be exposed to a steady stream of profanity, drunkenness, or vile behavior and not have that affect your soul in some way. And however I treat my body will also affect my soul. If I go on neglecting my body, if I don't exercise or rest my body appropriately, my soul is going to feel that. And I'm going to suffer emotionally in some way. The point is, my mind, body, and soul are connected. And how I treat one affects the others. And the question is this. What are some signs that my soul is in trouble? What are some signs of soul damage or soul depletion? I've got 10 of them real quick. And, you know, I've studied this over this past couple of weeks. And some of this is my own stuff. But I think here's first five of them. Irritability where little things just send you over the edge, things that shouldn't bother you, just send you. Irritability all the time. Key sign that something isn't right in your soul. Anxiety is another one, where you don't even know where it's coming from. Sometimes just irrational fear. You're just anxious about stuff. Compulsive overworking, where other things don't even have an interest anymore. Just work, work, work. Emotional numbness where you don't even feel good or bad necessarily. And along these lines, an inability to laugh. Just haven't laughed in a while. Escapist behavior, behaviors. You know, overeating, overdrinking, overspending, pornography, surfing the web just constantly. These are things that I just want to escape because I feel so lousy inside. A few others, loss of passion. Just don't care anymore about anything. Preoccupation, I'm just going to quit my job. 
preoccupation with retiring early. Just want to bail, run away. No time or tolerance for people because people are annoying. <laughs> of course they're annoying. People are annoying. But, you know, just no tolerance at all. I've had it with people. Slippage in spiritual practices. You know, corporate worship is hit and miss. Very little Bible reading during the week. Almost no prayer, no solitude. Just slipping in my, in my spiritual practice. And this final one just kind of me. Chronic case of the crazies. Where you just feel like, I'm going to lose it. So if you've got that, might be an issue. Now, to be fair, if you've just got maybe two of these, your soul is probably okay. Probably. Although if you've got a chronic case of the crazies, I'm not sure. But <laughs> you're probably okay. And we all kind of dip into these things back and forth a little bit. But I'm telling you, if you've got more than two, your soul's in trouble. Your soul's in trouble. But my observation is this. People don't pay attention to these signs. They have a vague notion that something might be awry. So they keep pushing and driving, and here's what they do. They delude themselves into thinking that someday it's going to get better. And it's a delusion. So they just keep maintaining this craziness until the pain gets so severe that something just breaks in their life. Or something they love breaks. Like their marriage or some kind of relationship with their children or parent. So, friends, I can tell you with absolute certainty, it is not God's will for you to drive yourself so hard that your soul just cries out for help. So let me offer some guidance to revive your soul. And it starts with this. It starts with what the Bible calls singleness of heart. I was reading in Jeremiah this past week and came across this verse. And God says, he says, I will give them, my people, singleness of heart so they will worship me, keyword, all the days. Every day of their life. When I read that verse, I wrote down in my journal these words, Bob, do you have a singleness of heart for God? Do you have one heart, one focus, one purpose to worship and seek God all the days of your life? Bob, do you have a singleness of heart or is your heart completely scattered and divided and going a thousand different directions? You know, we humans tend to always want more. I mean, that's just kind of human nature. We always want more, you know, more entertainment, more travel, more YouTube videos, more experiences, more responsibility. We always seem to want more. And there's nothing wrong with want wanting more. But here's the question. It's what we want more of to try to fill and satisfy our soul. St. Augustine wrote about this many, many years ago. St. Augustine is one of my faith heroes of all time. He was on a search for meaning and satisfaction in life. He tried everything. Finally, he came to this conclusion. God, you have made us for yourself, and our souls are restless until they find their rest in you. He's saying our souls were made for God. Anybody here have a restless soul that's crying out for something to fill it? I'm telling you, our souls were made for God. If we try to fill them with something other than God, they will always feel restless and empty. Now, it's true. All of us want to be happy. 
Isn't that true? All of us do. We all want to be happy. I want to be happy. You want to be happy. And so we try to fill our lives with things we believe will make us happy. Like a third stall garage. I thought that would make me happy. And it did a little bit. But not a lot. Or we think it's a new purchase, a new bow bow or gun or boyfriend or girlfriend or a new upgrade of some sort. But I love what Tim Keller says about this. I love this statement. Look what he says. He says, because of sin, we misidentify what's going to make us happy. Because we're all flawed in our judgment and our thinking, we misidentify what's going to make us happy. The reason I think a lot of people run around with a depleted and damaged soul is they misidentify what's going to make them happy. And so they look for something other than God. There's got to be something other than God to fill my soul, which leaves me empty. They don't have singleness of heart. And they miss it. My dog, Blue, <laughs> loves to chase and retrieve his dummy. Two to three times a week, I'll go out back into the swamp and throw the dummy into the thickest, nastiest stuff I can find. And he loves it. He'll take off like a shot, and he won't give up until he finds it and brings it back. But he knows that his dummy is not the real thing. So last week I took him to an area that, area that has wild birds, wild pheasants, and as soon as I got him into the tall grass and cattails, he went berserk, shifted into a whole different gear, and immediately he started hunting. I didn't have to coax him, didn't have to tell him, but boom, his nose was on the ground, his tail was flailing, quartering back and forth into the wind. It was a thing of beauty to watch. I could have waved a chunk of steak in front of his nose. He wouldn't have stopped for it. So I followed him through the tall grass because I knew he was onto a bird. I could read his body language. Suddenly, a pheasant flushed perfectly in front of us. And he looked back at me like, why didn't you shoot? Because it was out of season. He didn't know that, but I I knew that. And so immediately, he was on to the next one. I said to my friend Scott, look at him. Look at him. He can't help himself. The focus, the singleness of heart to find and flush birds is what this dog was made for. It's why God put him on the planet. So I tell my wife, I have to take him hunting. I do. Because his soul is empty without it. (laughs) Now here's my point. Because there is a point. Just like Blue's soul was made to pursue pheasants, I'm telling you, friends, our soul, our soul was made to pursue God. And until we have this singleness of heart to know him and worship every single day, we're going to feel an emptiness and a restlessness trying to fill it with fake stuff, fake dummies. Psalm 62.5, look what it says. My soul finds rest in work. (laughs) Doesn't say that, does it? My soul finds rest in TV or in another relationship or in Doritos watching the Vikings with my hand inside that. No, my soul finds rest. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. I might do that. In God. Is your soul at rest these days? Do you have a singleness of heart to know and pursue God more than anything else? Is it a daily practice of prayer and solitude and Bible reading? 
Let me get more practical with you on this. 18 years ago, I read a phrase out of one of John Ortberg's books that I've never forgotten. This phrase has helped me probably more than any other statement to really evaluate my life when it comes to my soul. John was telling about a time in his life when he was spiritually and emotionally depleted. So he called his mentor, Dallas Willard. And Dallas Willard is dead now, but he was just an amazing author, thinker, theologian, pastor, kind-hearted man. I've read most of Willard's books. So, so John calls Dallas, and he told him how depleted he was. And he said, Dallas, what can I do to revive my soul? John said there was a long pause on the phone. And then Dallas said, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Another long pause. John said, okay, I've written that one down. That's a good one. What else is there? John had lots to do. He wanted to cram as many units of wisdom into the least amount of time possible. What else is there, Dallas? Another long pause. Then Dallas said, there is nothing else. To revive your soul, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Hurry was so normal for John, and by the way, it's so normal for many of us. We don't even know it. We don't even know that we're doing it. Ortberg went on to write that many of us suffer from what's come to be known as hurry sickness. And it's built into our culture. For example, nobody wants low-speed internet. We want high speed, of course. When we're sick, we don't go to a real doctor who takes too long. We go to the Minute Clinic at Walgreens. We don't go to McDonald's because they sell good food or even cheap food because it's what? Fast food. But then people still had to park and go in, so they invented drive throughs so families could eat dinner in their minivans, as God intended. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I, I run through airports. Uh, a few years ago, my son and I were in Chicago, and I, as, as, as we were walking uh, to catch a flight in O'Hare, he was, David was walking about three paces ahead of me, and he's very tall, six foot two, long legs, and I was struggling to keep up with him. Some random guy saw us walking together, figured we were father and son, and he said, your son should slow down for you, feeling sorry for me. You know. Your son should slow down for you. Without missing a beat, David said to this guy, he said, I got it from him. He said, all my life I've had to run to try to keep up with my dad. Now it's just a habit. I've never forgotten that. I wonder how much of my children's life I missed. Because I was just running. People who have hurry sickness are what I call skimmers. They skim over things. People who have hurry sickness skim over their kids. They skim over their marriages. They skim over their relationship with God. They skim over their souls. As I was thinking about this part of my message, I thought, you know, what are some things that add speed to my life? What are things that, that cause me to hurry? And I just jotted down a few of them. Any, any major purchase that I make, like a new car, boat, cabin, or motorcycle, because now I have to work overtime to pay for those things, insure them, fix them, and store them. Nothing wrong with those things. 
They just add speed. Just know that. People add incredible speed. Friends, some of us try to maintain too many friendships. And we're running from one commitment to the other commitment to the other commitment because we so feel so guilty that to say no to somebody. So we just say yes, yes, yes. And our soul suffers because you can't just keep running from commitment, commitment. People at incredible speed. Traveling adds enormous speed, especially in my life. I don't know about yours. Before I travel, getting ready to go, thinking about all those things and getting things taken care of here on this end. During travel, and then when I get home, things are piled up and I have to reboot. Traveling adds incredible speed to my life. I have to be very careful how and where I travel. Kids add tremendous speed. Some of you have two or three little kids. Your life is a blur. You have to be very careful what you add to an already hectic period of life if you've got kids. Moving, because now you got to update, cancel, change, find new dentist, schools, friends, and church. Moving adds incredible speed. For me, an additional speaking or writing adds speed, which is why I have to say no to almost everything outside of normal work. Friends, to revive your soul, you have to eliminate hurry from your life, what are some things you might need to let go of, get rid of, so you can reduce the RPMs for your soul? Third thing to revive your soul is this. you got to build in solitude. The most famous psalm ever written, most recited, Psalm 23, it starts out like this. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. You'll notice in this verse that the primary work of soul restoration is by God's Spirit. Notice that He is the one, God, who leads me by quiet waters. And He is the one who restores my soul. You and I can't restore our own souls. It doesn't happen through physical workout, crash diet, or a really good counselor. God does it. Only God can revive and restore a human soul. Some of you here at all six campuses, some of you have a deeply wounded soul. And maybe some of you are trying to heal it by yourself. You know, through meditation, exercise, or counseling, and some of that could help. But I'm telling you, only God can heal and restore a wounded soul. Some of you have an anxious soul or a weak or tired soul. You can't fix that by reading, exercising, or moving in with your boyfriend or girlfriend because reviving a soul is the work of God's spirit. And secondly, in this verse, God restores our souls beside quiet waters, in quiet places, while we're in solitude with him. When you're alone with him, there's no television on, there's no texting or tweeting or twer twerping or whatever comes through the phone. <laughs> there's no surfing the net. It's, it's when you're quiet, when you're not wired, when you're alone with God and he can speak to you by his spirit. No conversing with others. Friends, you have to create time and space in your life for God to restore your soul. 
The work of soul restoration is the work of God's spirit, and the place he does it is in solitude, primarily through Bible reading, prayer, and reflection. So in recent months, my soul was in dangerous, at dangerous levels of depletion. And I knew I needed some solitude so God could do his work of repair. I had just come off an intensive eight-month-long evaluation of my leadership with 125 pages of feedback that was very personal and very emotional. I had been on a steady speaking load. I've been dealing with the recent loss of a very close friend whose funeral I will be doing this week. And my heart still hasn't healed totally from a hard ministry year that had several difficult staff transitions. But I had a bow hunting trip planned for last week. And it was kind of a bucket list trip that I'd been planning for about six months. And you kind of have to do that. You have to get it on your calendar if you're going to make you know, these things happen so that nothing gets in the way. And it was such a gift for me to be able to do this. So right after church two weekends ago, I left for Montana with a close friend and a dangerously depleted soul. The very next morning, early Monday morning, I was deep in grizzly bear country and elk country with another friend, Ron Iverson, who I would be hunting with and who thinks and sounds just like a bull elk. And I took, I think we... I'm going to show you some video here of Ron. He's going to be calling. It's the coolest sound on earth. <laughs> I followed Ron around for three days in the back country of Montana. We didn't hear or see anything for three days. But on the fourth morning... It was 32 degrees, and Ron let out this bugle before daylight, and about a half mile away, a bull elk answered, and it was amazing. Immediately, I panicked. <laughs> For the next 20 minutes, Ron was calling this bull elk, and he was answering, and it was across the valley and through the timber, and all of a sudden, Ron said, he's coming. I said, how do you know that? He said, he's coming. Hide in those trees, behind those trees. I'll keep calling behind you. I started to hyperventilate. My glasses fogged up. I was a total mess. I got down on my knees to get ready for this thing. And then I saw this 800-pound bull elk coming right for me. Steam was coming through his nostrils. And I thought, I'm going to die right here. I'm going to die. He was looking for a girlfriend. Suddenly he came, he stopped about 20 yards in front of me, but he was a younger bull, and the shot wasn't right, and I let him pass. But what a thrill. You know what I wasn't thinking about during those moments? Work. I wasn't thinking about writing sermons or problems. I sat on the forest floor that crisp morning after that happened. Shards of sunlight were streaming through the mountain timber, and I noticed something. I noticed a tiny little spark of joy ignite deep down in my soul. And I thanked God that I was alive. 
and that he was good and that he loves me and he's reviving me. The very next day, Ron and my other friend Fred said, Bob, let's go fly fishing on the Blackfoot River. It's the river where the movie A River Run Through It was shot. Can you imagine? Let's float the Blackfoot and fly fish for rainbow trout, just the three of us. And normally I would say, oh, man, I'm so all over that. You know what I did? I passed. I passed. Because I knew my soul wasn't quite right yet. I said, you two guys go. I'm going to stay back. And it was, the, it was the most amazing day. That day I, I read, I wrote down some thoughts. I took two naps. I've never done that in my entire life. I took a walk. I exercised. I laid on the couch and stared at the mountains. But mostly, friends, I was alone with God. And I asked God to speak to me. And I asked him to restore me and minister to my soul. I asked him to strengthen me by his spirit. And he did. During my Bible reading, I asked him to show me new things about myself and about himself. And he did. Because it's not just being alone somewhere and just kind of being alone. you got to invite God into that. It's one of the best days I've had in two years. God led me beside quiet waters. And friends, there, right there, he restored my soul. Anybody here need a day like that? Or two? Or three? Where do you go to restore your soul? For me, it's in the woods, it's on the prairie, it's by water, where God does his slow work of restoration. For my son, it's when he's alone on a golf course. For other people, it might be in the garden or when they run or when they're on horseback or on the back deck. You can't always go to Montana, but every year, friends, I am looking for a three to five day stretch of time where I can be alone with God for him to restore my soul. I need it. Most of us need it. And where I pray and Bible read and reflect. Then to maintain my soul, this is what I do. I look forward to a half hour every morning. You know this about me, those of you who have been around. Half hour every morning where I just quiet my life. I read a little bit out of a good book, out of the Bible. Then I pray just a half hour. And God restores my soul a little bit every morning. And then after work when I get home, first thing I do is I love up my dog. And we go out in the backyard and... We run around a little bit, and he restores my soul. My dog does, and I restore his a little bit. And then it's my wife after that. (laughs) The dog just, you know, he just butts his way in. I can't help it. So then my wife and I will sit on the back deck together. You know, when it's nice out, and we'll stare at the backwoods in in the yard. We don't say a whole lot. We just kind of sink in the chair, and God... Restores me a little bit. A lot of people think they can run on empty for months and months and months on end. And then they think, well, I'm just going to supercharge my soul. Your soul doesn't work that way. you got to maintain and attend to your soul little by little, day by day, week by week, month by month. You don't, you don't supercharge a battery. You trickle charge. Slowly. Over time. So I have a question for you. What are your daily, weekly, and annual places and rhythms of solitude where God can do his work? Some of you are sitting there saying, I don't have any. It could be the reason 
your soul is depleted. Your soul, my soul, finds rest in God alone. As we close today, we want to create an opportunity real quickly for all of us to quiet our souls just a little bit. In communion, ask God to meet us here, restore us a little bit. So at all campuses, I'm going to invite the ushers and people are going to help pass out the elements if you would do that at this time. And when you receive that element, that little thing, it's, I don't know what to call it, a cup and a whatever. The bread is on top. It's a little funky. You've got to peel that back to get the bread and then you've got to peel the second layer back. And just do that when you're ready. But I'd encourage you to hang on to it for just a couple of seconds, just a minute or two. Sit quietly before God. Ask him to restore you. Ask him to do his work in your life. Some of you are in a hurry all the time. Ask God to forgive you for that. Some of you need to build in solitude and you don't know how. Ask God to help you with that. Some of you maybe don't have singleness of heart. Your heart is scattered all over the place. Ask God to bring you back to center. Ask him to forgive you. The bread represents the body of Christ that was broken for all of us. The cup represents his blood that was shed for the forgiveness of sins. You don't need to be a member of this church to participate in, the, in communion, but you do, need to be a member, you, do, you do need to be a follower of Christ. So those of you, if you haven't made a decision for Christ, just wait patiently for the rest. And, uh, but spend some time with God alone. All of us can do that. And maybe just ask him, God, restore me. Just restore me by your spirit. And then we're going to close with a song at all campuses.